0: The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good evening. I'm so used to saying good morning these days. Good evening. I've been told to move this forward, so this is going to be awkward because I'm balancing a cup. And got it. Did it. Done. Done. All right, Um, appreciate those of you who are here, and I know there's a lot of people joining us online as well, and so thanks for engaging tonight. I know, um, yeah, there's a lot of interest in terms of not just kind of uh, mental interest, but kind of self-interest and thoughtfulness in this conversation and the things that we're talking about as a church, and so uh, we really appreciate your willingness to continue to lean in. Uh, For us as a church, uh, issues related to... Diversity and racial justice aren't secondary, it's a piece of who we feel like God's called us to be as a church. And it's something we've been leaning into for a a while, for the past four or five years with more kind of intentionality. And uh, in this particular season with some of the kind of cultural uh, unrest around the issue and some of the conversations that are happening kind of in the public sphere and public square right now, we're finding that there's stuff we have to clarify and speak to to help you understand our heart in our intention and our vision behind what we're doing as a church, why we're engaging in the ways that we are and our plan moving forward. And so um, that's a little bit of what we're going to do tonight. And uh, my job is not to come and present in any way as an expert on the issue or issues related to racial justice or diversity. I'm, I'm not. I'm learning. I've been learning for a while, but I am by no means an expert. Um, what I'm speaking as tonight is as a Bible teacher Uh, which is something that I do here as a part of Park Church and as a pastor. I'm a shepherd of this particular church family, uh, along with a number of other pastors pastors and pastoral leaders. As we think about what does it mean to lead this church and to teach and to guide through all the things we face in life, including issues of injustice and racism that we face in our culture. And so I'm speaking tonight as a Bible teacher uh, and as a pastor, not as an expert. And, and part of that for me is just embracing the reality that I'm on my journey. I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm making mistakes, I'm stumbling. And we are as a leadership team learning, growing, making mistakes and stumbling. And we have been and we will continue to learn and grow and make mistakes and stumble in this vision. And so um, I want to ask for grace in the conversation. And I think as we learn, we've kind of decided it's better to lean in and to learn and to grow than it is to avoid a topic when you feel uncomfortable or feel like you don't know exactly how to say it or what to say or what kind of like triggers you're going to trip as you talk about it or or what things are going to kind of like need clarification later on. And so a lot of this evening is, is... providing more clarity, because we've been speaking about things, we've posted on social media, we've done sermons, we've done panel discussions, and we want to continue to say this is something we care deeply uh, about. And so uh, what, what I'm asking uh, of you is for grace, but also to continue to lean in, because you're on your journey. Um, All of you are on your journey in this issue as you understand racial identity, as you understand what the Bible talks about with respect to these things, as you understand what's happening in our own society, in our history, and in our present, and the way it shapes us as a people, and the way we're called to interact as the people of God. And so I want to ask for grace, and I want you to know that you're loved. Um, I know for, in particular, for people of color in our church family, uh, that this conversation can be really, really exhausting. Um, it's challenging, it's hard, it's in a, there's an emotional experience at a deeper level that I don't understand entirely, but I respect and I know that, I know that that's real. And so I want to say thank you for your grace and for your engagement and for leaning in um, as we continue to uh, work through this as a church. Um, like I said, this is not new for us. It's not like, uh, oh, shoot, stuff happened in 2020. We need to figure out what to do. Uh, It was about five years ago that we kind of drew a line in the sand as an elder team, as we considered God's vision for the beauty of diversity in his kingdom, that his kingdom is made up of people with different ethnicities and experiences and perspectives and cultural backgrounds and colors of skin. And that diversity is designed by God to be a beautiful reflection of his glory. And he's actually gathering people from different ethnicities and cultures and languages and experiences to be a part of his kingdom to actually reflect his manifold beauty. And that's his vision for the world. And as we looked at our church and our context, we didn't feel like we were adequately representing that or being faithful to that vision that God has for his kingdom as we thought about what it meant to make disciples here in Denver. And just the reality of this neighborhood and the area of the city that we're in and some of our inattention and our lack of thoughtfulness and care in this issue that led towards being a predominantly homogenous church, not exclusively, but predominantly homogenous church. And so learning what it means to repent of some of that apathy, indifference, and inattention began for us a process of learning. So beginning to read, engaging with other pastors and non-white pastors in our city that were helping us understand the history of our city and what it means to be a church that's actually making disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people in the city, not just a particular type of people or a particular subculture of people. And so we started learning, we started kind of having different speakers come in and teach us, we started doing some trainings as a team, we built a diversity committee that helped us begin to think uh, with mostly non-white people in our church family helping us understand their experience and what it meant to be a non-white person in a predominantly white church. And we just started learning and growing and through that we learned, hey, we need to speak when there are public issues, we need to actually speak about these things because it's hitting people at an emotional level that it might not hit me at it at this point, but that's because of my own apathy and indifference to some of the issues happening. But we need to be a church that's addressing some of these things. And so we began to address things that are happening culturally, not chasing headlines, but saying these events are hurtful and have a deep impact on people's lives. And we need to address them as shepherds of a church that has non-white people in it, and that we wanna to continue to pay attention to those issues. We also saw it as a gospel imperative that we needed to teach on this as a necessary implication of the gospel in the pursuit of our vision. And so we were working on that for a number of years and it affected a lot. We have a long-term plan that we're involved in that affects everything from our leadership team, not just diversity on our leadership team, that our leadership team is locked tight on this issue, that we understand how we're thinking about it, why we're thinking about it, what we're doing about it. And so we've been in that process for a few years, building that sort of like kind of solidarity as a leadership team. And then continuing to train our church since we've done things like a whiteness intensive, we've done seminars and panel discussions. And I want to share with you kind of our commitment as a leadership team. I think we'll put it on a slide behind me here, uh, maybe, if we have it. There it is. This is our commitment. I'm in pursuit of a biblical vision for God's people and God's heart for justice, the leadership team at Park Church is committed to Confronting the sin of racism and racial injustice wherever it exists in our own hearts, in our church family, and in our culture. We're committed to that. We're not motivated by modern cultural ideologies or political agendas, but by the gospel of grace and a biblical vision for God's kingdom. Because of this gospel and because of this hope, we can, as a church, we can be a people who continually acknowledge and repent of our own sin, receive God's grace, and then do our best to work out the reconciling, healing, and transformative power of the gospel. This is our commitment. This is... What we're committed to, it's what we've been committed to, it's what we're going to stay committed to. But I need to unpack some of that because as we've pressed into some of these issues, and it's not a majority in our church, but some people with thoughtfulness and care have said, hey, it sounds like the things you're saying sound like things I have questions about. And so we want to speak to some of that, but we don't want to be defensive of our commitment because we think this is a biblical vision for the people of God. So we're not trying to defend our commitment. What we're trying to do is bring clarity and understanding, knowing that there are people that have questions and are wrestling, especially in the current sort of like ideological climate and the polarized climate that we're in. And so what I wanna do is give, there's not enough time and I am not known for being succinct. Um, And so I'm I'm going to do my best uh, to, you guys laughed way too hard at that, (laughs) way too hard. I'm gonna take a drink as I swallow my shame. There we go. Um, I'm going to give a bit of a biblical vision uh, behind, behind this. Because uh, I want you to see in God's word that this is, this is what the people of God are, are called to and have always been called to. Not just the church, but throughout history. The church is this continuation of the people of God, the kind of new Israel, the people of God's kingdom, not just called to kind of believe a truth in our heads and believe that it has some impact on our future, but it's believing a, a news about Jesus who reconciles us, us to God, transforms our heart, and mobilizes us to be light in the world, his kingdom people like a city on a hill and like salt and light in the world. And so I'm gonna give a bit of a biblical kind of like theology of this pursuit of justice, um, kind of addressing some key terms in here that are used in society. And then I'll share a little bit of the cultural ideologies that are out there and how we understand them. Um, And it'll be crude representations in some cases where we are distinct from them but also where we overlap and connect with them in ways, and, uh, and then how we can move forward. So essentially, uh, as you look at the Bible itself, from Genesis to Revelation, the biblical story reveals God's plan to build a kingdom where his glory and its manifest, manifold, diverse, beautiful glory is both seen and experienced and reflected through diverse people. Uh, diverse people that he's actually intended to create a kingdom where his glory is seen, experienced, and reflected through the diversity of his people. It's a kingdom where his creativity and his character are put on display through a multi-ethnic and multicultural family that sees and values the beautiful differences that God has created in his world. And it's a kingdom where people use their diverse strengths, gifts, and resources to sacrificially love one another as an expression of God's sacrificial love for us. So he's created diversity and and differences in his people. You see this in creation from the very beginning as you see Adam and Eve created with distinctions but co-equal in glory, co-equal in dignity, co-equal in value, co-equal in worth and made to actually show and sacrificially use their diverse strengths to show sacrificial love and through that sacrificial love and that beautifully diverse unity, you see something beautiful about the character of God. And in Adam and Eve, it's this sort of micro-representation of what would be experienced at a macro level through all the different diversities that exist in God's world. The different perspectives, gifts, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds that we are made not to be homogenous people, but the glory of God is more beautifully seen through diversity that comes together with harmony and unity than it would be through sort of some homogenous kingdom. So he created it with intentionality and it was good We know that that's not the nature of the world we live in. We don't often see people like really valuing each other. We find in ourselves because of sin, this propensity to take our distinctions, our differences and exalt them over other people using our strengths and our resources, not to sacrificially love and bless other people and not to appreciate their presence in the world, but to domineer and to hurt, and to wound, and to exalt and promote ourselves. And so this is what the fall kind of shows us. In a rejection against the reign of God, we find ourselves kind of in this place of pride and shame, constantly seeking to use whatever we can to kind of claw over people instead of sacrificially using our strengths to love and to serve other people. And so in that kind of environment, you start seeing all kinds of sin. And we have different names, and there's different names in the Bible for different kinds of sin. You have pride and you have lust and you have oppression and you have injustice and racism is one of those kinds of sins uh, racism is a sin where we or people of a particular group or ethnicity with racial prejudices exercise their power in ways that harm disadvantage or oppress people of other ethnicities And so we surround ourselves often in echo chambers where people share values or something about their promotion. We kind of tribalize ourselves and we come together and if we kind of protect people that think like us, look like us, kind of process like us, have the perspective that we do, then we can feel better about ourselves and we have this inclination then to look down on other people and to use whatever power or whatever privilege or whatever agency we have to protect ourselves and disadvantage other people. And so this is where racial injustice comes from. It's been around since the beginning, since the very, very beginning as distinctions, and you see it all throughout biblical history. You see it between different people groups, you see it within the people of God, towards people of other ethnicities and cultural backgrounds, it's all over. And there are different kinds of this racism. And so this is where culture begins to kind of give us terms to help understand different dynamics and experiences. So you have overt racism, which includes any thoughts or behaviors that demonstrate a conscious acknowledgement of racist attitudes or beliefs, like this conscious awareness or conscious thought that I am better than this other person because of the color of my skin, because of my ethnic background or makeup. There's implicit racism, which includes unconscious biases, expectations, or tendencies that exist within an individual regardless of ill will or any self-aware prejudices. So when I say that we're committed to confronting the sin of racism and racial injustice in our own hearts, I mean, in my heart also. We kind of have this thing like, I'm not a racist. I'm like, no, I I have racist thinking in me and I have pride in me and I have sin in me. And by acknowledging that reality, I can be open to hearing about where I've expressed thoughts that are harmful or ideas or practices or behaviors as a leader that are in ways demonstrating biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious. And if I embrace that reality, saying it's not, it's not that it's not a big deal, but actually because I'm loved by the God of the universe, I can hear that there are things about the way I think and the way I act and the way I've behaved that are hurtful to other people and that are self-protective to people who think like me and look like me and value the things I do. And these are implicit, there's implicit racism. People get very, very afraid. Like, are you saying that I'm a racist? And it's like, hold on, may, what, if, what if there is within you If you're so afraid of the term of racism that it's impossible that you could possibly be one, then when there is something in you, you'll be unable to receive that reality and experience change. And then there's systemic racism. Systemic racism is distinguished uh, from bigotry or racial bigotry by the existence of institutional systemic policies, practices, and economic and political structures which place minority and racial ethnic groups at a disadvantage in relation to the institution's racial or ethnic majority. Um, this is all over the Bible. I want you to think about, for example, the uh, nation of Israel, or that before they're even the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people when they come into Egypt, and there's a whole policy of oppression from the Egyptian power dynamic towards the Hebrew people. And so they see the Hebrew people as a means by which they can build their own kingdom. And so they enslave the Hebrew people as a ethnic minority, and they institute policies and practices to use those people to build the Egyptian, you know, empire. And as they're using the Hebrew people to build the Egyptian empire, even so, the Hebrew people are multiplying greatly, the population is growing substantially, and at some point, they become a threat to Egyptian power, and so they amp up amp up the sort of oppressive system to start creating very rigid, very harsh practices On top of the slavery, the slavery became more brutal, more exaggerated, uh, more over the top, and then even kind of further exacerbated by the the kind of ultimate kind of solution to steal uh, terminology from the Holocaust, but the solution to really stamp out and exterminate the Hebrew people by killing the babies and destroying a whole generation so that they would never be a threat to Egyptian power. And this is systemic racism. So if the pharaoh that instituted these things out of a desire to protect his own power dies and he hands off the power to his child and the child comes in and the child's like, oh, you know, uh, uh, Israel's great or Egypt's great. We love it. It's fantastic. It's what's such a great place. And people are like, well, how do you feel about the, you know, the injustice towards the Hebrew people? It's like, well, there's not injustice towards the Hebrew people. Like a lot of Hebrews, I had like a bunch of friends growing up that were Hebrews. I like him, we got along, we played together, we had fun. And he doesn't feel like they're a threat to his power because that's been stamped out pretty severely already by the power of his father who came before him. And this is what systemic injustice does. It can transcend generations and be held, even if unconsciously, by the people that inherit the systems of power that are built on the backs of the oppressed. And so this is what has existed throughout the world. It's in the Bible. It's been around throughout history. It's not crazy. It's not like super complicated. It's just, it's what exists. And so you look at throughout the history of America, and it's pretty obvious we stand here today on Indigenous Peoples Day, and even calling it Indigenous Peoples Day is is a progressive move from Columbus Day, which is celebrating colonizing movements And what that affected for the indigenous peoples that had been here for a long time. So even looking at the reality of things like the Trail of Tears, which is just a systemic way that American government oppressed and displaced thousands, tens of thousands of indigenous peoples in ways that are so brutal and destructive. And we we live in a society where that's shaped things, right? I went to the Grand Canyon this year and we drove through Navajo Nation and you just feel, you feel the visible brokenness Of a nation that's experiencing intense oppression for generations and generations in a country in which we live and move and engage. So systemic justice is a thing. I don't think many people um, doubt that uh, it's a thing Uh, but it's a thing that's actually affected and shaped aspects of our reality even today and so you can look at throughout history there's there's so much there's so much I don't have time to get into all of it but from not just the kind of uh, treatment of the colonizers towards indigenous people, but then through slavery, slave trade, chattel slavery, the reality of that, into the sort of reconstruction era and the white supremacist groups that rose up in the middle of the reconstruction era to establish terror and systems of fear, to continue to oppress and demean, uh, in particular blacks in this country, but also other people of color, into kind of the Jim Crow era, into housing policies, lending policies, redlining issues, criminal justice issues, privatized prison systems, kind of um, disproportionate penalties for different kinds of crimes based on ethnicities, but also policies that were crafted in order to think about disproportionate penalties towards people of different ethnicities. These things have shaped the reality of our country and still affect things today. So you can disagree on how much there are current injustices in our legal system. You can disagree on that. I'm not gonna try to like make a case for that, but pay attention and know that the history of this country is not innocent, and it's not a long time ago when there are very explicit policies that disadvantage people and people groups, in particular blacks and other people of color and ethnic minorities in our country. And this is just the reality we live in, and it's sin, it's just sin. And so what, what, is there hope or what's, what's happening? And there is hope. And that's what God intervened into human history to give hope. And he first did it through the nation of Israel. He called the nation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to establish a kingdom where he would shine his light, the light of his glory, to the world through a kingdom that he was building, reconciling to himself people by grace through faith in the blood of a lamb. And so the Israelites come through the waters of the Red Sea, atoned for by the blood of a sacrificial lamb, through the waters, into the wilderness, and God begins to teach them, here's what it means to be my people. It's not just, yay, I rescued you, and now you're my people, and so go do do whatever you want. It's like, no, I'm, I'm reconstituting humanity. I'm getting back to the design. I'm getting back to the beauty, and the justice, and the diversity. So he created from this one people group a kingdom that was supposed to shine as the light of the world where people from other ethnicities and nations were supposed to flock and say, yes, that's the God of the universe. I want to know him. I want to experience him. And so in the law given to the Israelites in Sinai, this is in Exodus, he starts teaching them what it means to be a just people. And he's correcting issues of injustice that they had picked up from their experience in Egypt. Four hundred years in Egypt, they had been shaped by unjust practices. Probably they were embedded. They thought this is just the way things are, and this is the way things are going to be. And and God's like, no, 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 no. My kingdom people are supposed to be different. And so, so much of the law which we taught through a couple years ago is around justice. Um, there are laws about equitable treatments. So many laws about not showing partiality in court systems, not giving disproportionate punishment to different kinds of lawbreakers, not being bribed by people with wealth to get them out of crimes and to kind of take the poverty and people in poverty who don't have that sort of kind of economic advantage and punishing them more severely. There's retributive justice, this lex talionis thing where this call for the people of God to kind of experience and to show that uh, crime and uh, kind of hurting people in certain ways deserves deserve some sort of retribution. Uh, but where the beauty of the law comes in and is most distinct is when you start looking at the laws of restorative justice. Which is where the people of God are legally required in God's in kind of wisdom and instructions for them to show generosity towards the marginalized, the immigrants, the oppressed, and the sojourners. Not just giving people kind of like, kind of like, hey, we're, we're all the same. But saying if there's disproportionate kind of experiences, if there are people that are impoverished or marginalized or hurting, that people are required by God's law and wisdom to bring restorative justice to lift up and care for and show generosity. See, so you have like gleaning laws. You see it in the book of Ruth where Boaz, per the law of God, is creating kind of margin on the edges of his field for people who didn't work in the field to come, people that are impoverished and sojourners to come and to benefit from and experience care from uh, the opportunities he had. You see it in Sabbath laws, which weren't just given to give rest to kind of the social elites, but were given to give rest to all the people in the kingdom and to support even people that had been in different kinds of indentured servanthood. You see it through the Jubilee Law, which is this radical, radical, radical law calling for redistribution of property every 50 years to bring equity and restore equity in the midst of, it's really kind of accounting for the brokenness of humanity and saying, People in power are going to gain more power. People who are oppressed are going to continue to get oppressed. And so every 49 years, this like God-ordained reset button to bring equity among the people of God. This is his heart. And the people of God did great. They did horrible. They are horrible. Uh, They turn from it in every kind of way. Here's how Tim Keller talks about uh, restorative justice. He calls it social justice. He says it involves going to the places where the fabric of shalom has broken down. Where the weaker members of society, and by weaker he means more vulnerable, oppressed, hurt, people have been made weak. Where the weaker members of society are falling through the fabric, and to repair it, that we bring repair, we bring reparation to the broken issues. And so you have wisdom from places like Proverbs thirty-one verses eight and nine. This is in God's wisdom for His people. He says, "Open your mouths for the mute." for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouths, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is God's command to his people. Open your mouth, speak, advocate, defend, care for the marginalized, the poor and the needy. And Israel failed to do this and God in exiling Israel, it was over and over and over again, kind of connected to not just their rejection of his wisdom, but their rejection of his wisdom through their injustice that they had become very comfortable with within their community. So in Isaiah chapter one, uh, essentially God's doing this like courtroom thing where he's like, I'm calling the heavens and the earth as witnesses and kind of, I am now prosecuting my people as those who have been guilty of injustice and I'm gonna find them guilty and exile them from my presence to Babylon. And here's what he says, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. This is like what God's commanding of his people. He's saying, you've failed to do what I've called you to do. You've, you've failed to be a distinctive people in areas of justice. And God was not okay with that. Or in Micah chapter six, he says this, he Says people are saying, Well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, like we've we've grievously broken God's wisdom and God's instruction. What do we need to do? And that's when he says this. He says, He has told you. Oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy or loving kindness, or as I said covenant love, and to walk humbly with your God. Um, this is what God's called his people to, and they had failed. And we've all failed. They're a little microcosm of humanity. We've all failed to act justly and be who God designed us to be. So what? Where do we go? And this is why Jesus entered the world, and this is where the biblical vision for justice is so beautiful and so powerful. Because Jesus entered into the world to bring forgiveness and reconciliation and transformation. Forgiving us for our rebellion against God, but not just forgiving us like, yay, I'm forgiven and now I get to go to heaven when I die, but actually reconciling us to the person of God. So now we're in relationship, we're loved, now we don't have to continue to kind of like establish ourselves and build ourselves up. We're now free as those who have been loved to admit our wrong, to confess our guilt, to repent, to experience change. And then he's given us his Holy Spirit to bring transformation to actually be who he designed humanity to be. To actually be the kind of people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with God, who show equitable treatment, who are bringing restoration to the brokenness and shalom, who live as God called us to live. And so this is who Jesus is is and he came into the world to reconcile humanity and he did it by laying down his life for us on the cross. Actually entering in identifying with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. He experienced so much pain, so much brokenness, so much injustice, experienced life as a refugee. He experienced life in homelessness. He experienced life in poverty. He experienced injustice in the court system, even hanging on a tree. He was unjustly condemned to die. And he did that all in order to take upon himself the weight of humanity's failure, and through his resurrection to bring hope that he can actually transform humanity to be who he's called us to be. And so he did. He entered into the world. He laid down his life. He rose again. And and I feel like there are so so many conversations I've had with people, and not a lot in our church, but even from other places where I get emails from people or relatives of people or um, other interactions where people are like, hey, shouldn't Christians be preaching the gospel right now? Like one 100% yes, we should. But Christianity isn't like conversionism. It's not just like, hey, get a bunch of people converted and live however we want and go to heaven when we die. The gospel is bigger than that. It's a gospel of kingdom. It's see people reconcile to God by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as people that have been reconciled learn to follow the way of Jesus as those who represent the glory of God in the ways we live in this world. And so our church is all about both of these things, seeing people reconcile to God and learn to actually be human, the, the kind of pur, beautiful God's design of humanity, which includes being people who do justice. And so even in Jesus' ministry, over and over and over again, he's confronting Israelites who are like, we're following God, and we're doing it. And he's like, no, you're like marginalizing people. You are not doing justice. You're not showing mercy. You're not caring for the vulnerable. You're not doing these things. And so you have a passage like Matthew, chapter 25, where God's Jesus is talking about what what happens at the end in this final judgment. And this is sobering. There's two parts to this. I'm going to share the the more optimistic, happier part. But everything he says here has a reverse side to it. He says, the king will say to those on his right, so there's people on his right and on his left that he's separated, come, you who prayed a prayer when you were five years old, and inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not what he says. Like we don't remember those things, and the king will answer them and say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. In other words, your posture towards the vulnerable, the marginalized, the outcast, the oppressed, the hurting, the imprisoned, the sick, your posture towards them is your posture towards Jesus. And you will be judged, I'm being very careful with my word here, according to the way you treated those people. Not on the basis of, and that's important theological terminology, we're, we're kind of accepted by God on the basis of Christ's work for us alone. On the basis of what Christ has done, his righteousness, his love, his justice, but that love and justice through which we're justified before God must necessarily bring transformation into our life. So Paul talks about it all the time, James talks about it all the time, in the teaching of Jesus it's everywhere. That the people of God aren't just those who in their head assented to some theological doctrine, they're the people who actually put their faith in Christ, which was necessarily manifested in transformed lives that showed love and kindness and generosity and justice in the world. And so there is no, I trust in Jesus, but I don't show love and kindness and do justice. This is exactly what James talks about in James chapter two. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. Or John, the beloved apostle of Jesus, that was the brother of Jesus. This is the beloved, maybe best friend of Jesus, 1 John 3, 16 and 18. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. My fear is that as kind of Protestant Christians, especially from a Reformed background that many of us come from, that I come from, that we've like lost the necessity of living according to God's design and actually growing. We don't have to be perfect in it. We don't have to be great at it. God's love and grace and patience and kindness and mercy is stunning. But because of it, we can confess the areas we are perpetually wandering. We can confess our injustices. We can confess our racism, overt or implicit. We can confess our apathy. We can confess our indifference and we can receive God's grace and forgiveness and humility and kindness and mercy. And through that grace, change by that grace change, not to earn God's favor, but to reflect God's love as those that are already loved by him. And this is who he's called us to be, and that's what we're committed to as a church, is continuing to lean into growing, just growing, mercifully, go with God's this sort of slow crawl, but we're just growing. So to have a fixed mindset, like I, I believe all the things I'm ever gonna believe, I'm not gonna learn anything new, and I kind of live the way I'm supposed to live, and I'm not gonna ever grow, That's like not Christianity. Christianity is, I have a lot to learn. There's a lot of things I'm sure I don't see well right now. There's a lot of things I don't totally understand right now. But God's teaching me and God's growing me and God's helping me learn and and grow as a human being to reflect his glory, to learn, to follow Jesus and his way of life. This is what he's called us to. And it's what we're committed to as a people. As we wait for Christ to come again and make all things new, we're not gonna patch up the world. We're not gonna fix the whole thing. There's gonna continue to be brokenness and division. But as the people of God, we're supposed to experience this progressive transformation steadily, little by little, until Christ comes again and makes it all new and sets it all right, which he will do. And that is hope for us. But it gives us also this ability to engage right now with thoughtfulness. And so as we engage in this particular Season Again, there's so much conversation now. So when there's injustice in the world, the people of God ought to be in there, active, engaging, talking. And it ought not to be insane or crazy or like, what's the church doing talking about social issues? It's like the church has always been called to address social issues. We're the kingdom people, reflecting the issues and the glory of God in the midst of society. So what I want to do is I want to show um, a. It's a little model I've been like working on and thinking about and running by different people and it's imperfect and it's in process and again I'm going to have crude representation so give me grace don't jump to lots of conclusions if you have feedback uh, (laughs) scratch that from the record if you have feedback pray about it that God will put it on my heart (laughs) Um, the Holy Spirit could totally do that by the way so try it um, we're going to put this chart up here, and I hope you can see some of it. Um, here's, here's what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the necessary so- social implications of the gospel. That the gospel has necessary social implications for the way we engage. And so, um, again, you're going to want to make connections, and you're going to want to over kind of analyze aspects of this, but I'll, I'll kind of walk through aspects of it and share with you Just how we think about this particular cultural moments and some of the feedback we're getting around things like from whether it's the sort of, you know, more kind of like in the sort of political sphere, partisan left or partisan right, different things and conversations. Like, hey, when you said that, it sounded like this. When you said that, it sounded like this. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Um, And so I'm going to I'm going to kind of address the concept here and that as a church, we're committed to the gospel. Committed to the the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. It's a a big gospel. It's not just a little little gospel. It's a big gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and the good news of the coming of his kingdom, which is right now coming as the spirit brings transformation into the lives of, of his people. That's why we pray the Lord's prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that that not just in a future day, but that that would be an experiential reality that we'd be experiencing more and more of the kingdom. And so we believe in the gospel, and the gospel has these biblical, these biblical um, implications. And so things like we're called as the people of God to seek first the kingdom of God. We're called to seek first the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that we disengage from social issues. And so some people it's like, hey, let's just seek first the kingdom, let's just talk about the kingdom, let's just talk about the Bible. We don't need to talk about the things happening in society around us. It's like, no, 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 no. Because we're also called, if you look at the bottom, to seek the flourishing of the city. The people of God have always been called to seek the well-being, the flourishing, the shalom of the city. And so there are are issues that you can kind of fall off the rails on. You can kind of go from, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, and so I'm not going to worry about politics, and I'm not going to worry about society, and I'm not going to worry about issues of injustice. Like, no, that's not, you don't have permission to not worry about it. You're called to care about it. You're called to seek the flourishing and the well-being of the city. It's a necessary gospel call. But at the same time, you can actually care so much about the flourishing of the city that you've attached your idea of kingdom hope to the future of our society. And it's not. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Empires rise and empires fall. And America will be one of those. And that's not our hope. Our hope is in the kingdom of God which transcends national identities. Or you can think about, if you look at the top right, this idea of personal responsibility. Like, hey, everybody's responsible for their own actions. I'm not responsible for other people, and they've made their decisions, and they're affected by their decisions, and I've got to make mine. It's true. You have personal responsibility. That's a real biblical concept. But another biblical concept is this idea of corporate responsibility. That as human beings, we're designed to be interconnected, interdependent beings, and the things we do in society affect other people around us, and we are connected, not just in the kind of implications, but even in responsibility. So the kind of (laughs) quintessential corporate responsibility is Adam's sin brought brokenness to all of humanity, and Christ's righteousness offers redemption to all of humanity. That's the sort of like epitome of corporate responsibility, that we can actually be corporately condemned through the sin of Adam and corporately redeemed through the righteousness of Jesus. But you also see it all throughout history, especially in non-Western civilizations, that whole communities are often kind of experience a corporate identity and experience blessing or cursing based on leadership and different issues like that. Or it's the sin of Achan in the book of Judges where Achan sins and his whole family is condemned because they find a corporate identity in relationship to their father. It's It's a biblical concept. So when people are talking about afraid of concepts like, and I'm going to use, here we go, white guilt, and, uh, and you kind of think like, oh, how could I be, how could I experience guilt based on just the color of my skin? It's like, well, it's complicated, it's complicated, I get it, and there are questions, and I'm hearing all the triggers and the emails start coming, uh, but the idea of actually inherited guilt from the sins of our forefathers is not an unbiblical idea, it's a very biblical idea so there's culpability that we carry as we pick up the power structures and we benefit from the injustices and we experience the cultural idolatries and the cultural sins of the generations that came before us. That's just biblical. It's not Marxist. It's not socialist. It's not, it's just biblical. And so, as a people, the way you have to like pay attention that there really is corporate responsibility. That doesn't mean shame on you. That doesn't mean forever and ever and ever you're just nasty guilty. It's like no, God sent Jesus into the world to redeem and forgive and justify guilty people. Good news for us. So we can be changed. We can admit our guilt. We can embrace and we can seek to do better and bring more restoration into the world. Uh, Also, on the sort of personal responsibility, you can go off the rails and just think like, again, I exist on an island, again, there's like a really unhealthy side of atomistic individualism, where you think like, the things I do aren't connected at all to other people, and there's no way I could actually ever be held responsible. There's so much here, and I'm going to go into, what what I really want to kind of hone in, though, is this idea of restorative justice, which we talked about, that's a, a biblical concept to bring restoration to the world. There's, there's a version of theology called liberation theology that comes mostly out of the kind of global south and eastern countries where concepts of liberation and liberation from oppression that the gospel equals, the gospel equals Jesus coming to liberate people from kind of either kind of political or material oppression of some kind. Now, the issue is when Jesus came into the world, he actually did come to bring liberation. Look at what he says in Luke chapter four. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like he came to bring liberty and restoration and shalom and jubilee. He came to bring these things. But yet the people of Israel still experienced Roman oppression, right? And when they kind of expected him to take a political throne and use kind of our concept of power to bring liberty and transformation, it's not what he did. But when he came by sacrificially loving and laying down his life, he brought transformation. So you see when like a Roman centurion comes to faith in Christ, it ought to change the way that Roman centurion treats Hebrew people. Or when a tax collector who's used power in his position to extort Hebrew poor and other Hebrew kind of working-class people, when that person, like a Zacchaeus, comes to faith in Christ, they're like, ah, I need to repay, and I'm going to like not just pay people back what I extorted from them, I'm going to give them four times the amount that I extorted from them to bring restoration and to repair the brokenness of what I did. This is what the gospel does, so it starts bringing healing and reconciliation and restoration to the world, and this is how the liberating movement of God works is by people being reconciled to God, changed from the inside out, and then reflecting that love in the world. And so we care about restorative justice, but we don't fall off the rails and and forget about human sin, that Jesus came to forgive us of our rebellion against God, reconcile us to God, save us from our sins, save us from eternal death. That's like core. We we believe that. Uh, We should care, like on, on the other side, we should care about Christian ethics. We should care about thriving and flourishing societies. That doesn't mean we have to legalize Christian ethics in every aspect of American society. It doesn't mean you need to create a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's not a Christian nation. And so we don't have to be concerned about taking every aspect of Christianity and getting it embedded into the laws of the land. And when you start overly conflating Christian ethics or America's kind of adherence to Christian ethics with the hope of the kingdom, you've gone off the rails. You've gone too far. Or you can think about confronting, we talked about, we're called as people of God to confront and advocate for the vulnerable, right? All these things in the circle. This is just like what the Bible calls the people of the kingdom to. We're we're called to do that. Oppression is a real thing. So when we start talking about oppression, it's like, you you must be a Marxist. It's like, well, no, I'm a Christian who reads the Bible and talks about oppression. Oppression is a kind of sin. So the concern about critical race theory, I had a hard time putting that title there because it's so... It's it's just it's harder to understand. When I put critical race theory, I'm putting it as a tag to represent something. Critical race theory is more of an analytical tool that doesn't have to be inherently rejected. It is stemming from Marxism and neo-Marxism, which is more than an economic system. There's a philosophy behind it, and that sort of philosophy behind it actually is something that is contrary to the biblical worldview, where you think of the core problem in the world as systems of power and systems. Uh, of oppression, where you have oppressors. This is crude, rude, simplistic. There's so much here. But systems of power who oppress and kind of necessarily use their power to oppress, which the Bible says people with power will be prone to oppress. The Bible says that. It's in Genesis 3, right there at the very beginning. Men are going to tend to use their power to domineer and oppress women. It's like right there as a part of sin, and and this kind of experience of oppression and the oppressed, and what Marxism more or less does, overly simplistic, is is that the problem is this system of oppression, this power, and so the, kind of to use biblical terminology, the unrighteous oppressors and the righteous oppressed, And, and the kind of, again, the oversimplification, the sort of caricature of it, is that the oppressed can do no wrong, they're righteous, the oppressors are the evil ones, and the only way to bring salvation is either distribution of power, distribution of assets, reallocation of power structures, or revolution. And so if you want to be, if you're a part of an oppressive caste or an oppressive group, the kind of only way to justify yourself is to divest yourself of power in some way and become anti-oppressor. And so people get really afraid when you hear phrases like anti-racism, because like that sounds like Marxism. It's like, well, but we all should be against racism. Like we should be anti-racism. And that stuff, still within a biblical worldview, the issue is, like, that's not how God divides the world. All of us have sinned, people who have oppressed and people who have been oppressed. We've all sinned. We all need to be reconciled to God. We've all turned from him. But as he transforms hearts, people who are a part of oppressive systems should repent of oppression. That's, like, just biblical, and we should confront it where we see it, because it's biblical, and so we should care for the poor, the marginalized, but there's all these idolatries. You should care for the unborn, but when you start attaching your hope to political systems, or partisanship, or particular candidates, or the future of the country, you've, you've lost the heart of the kingdom, and so what some people will do is they will be so afraid of the things that are kind of like the ditches on the outside, like that's scary, that they run to the other side of the circle, like, I'm so afraid of when you say something about oppression or systemic injustice, you must be a Marxist. And it's like, no, 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 no. No, no, I'm like holding fast to the gospel. And so there's this fear, and so there's like this pendulum swing to push away and to be fear-oriented. And we as a church believe the best way to stay faithful to the gospel is just to hold on to the gospel, not to police the boundaries, not to be so afraid of learning from people and learning from kind of social movements that we run away from real things that were called as the people of God to address. So we will learn from Freudian psychology and learn about the impact of family systems on the way we're formed and the way we behave without necessarily embracing all of sort of like Freud's understanding of religion. You can learn from an atheistic evolutionary biologist a lot about biology without embracing atheism. You can learn about behavioral neurology and about kind of where motivation comes from, where addictive behaviors come from without rejecting God's wisdom about God's power over sin and the power of God to transform the human heart. You can learn those things and engage in them. And we're so afraid of like learning from things that come from worldviews that we disagree with that we kind of like hunker down and kind of Our fear is like pushed us away from actually being who God's called us to be. This is what happened with fundamentalism in the 20th century. Fundamentalism began as holding fast to the gospel and then began to decide what are these kind of things that that we need to avoid and then started focusing up more on the things we need to avoid and started separating from people and groups and running away from different things and becoming this very closed group that's not a salt and light in the world not engaged in the things that God's called us to be engaged in. So as a church, our commitment is to hold fast to the gospel. And that's what you should do as you read books and listen to stories and engage in thoughts, to hold fast to the biblical narrative, to submerse yourself in God's word, to read it and to swim in it and to absorb it and to memorize it and to spend time with Jesus and to hold fast to the historic beauty of the gospel. And when you do that, it's gonna be an anchor that holds you away from some of the pitfalls, but it allows you to learn and to grow and to engage and to actually participate in movements within society that reflect God's common grace. And so in society right now, people are seeing the reality of a problem of injustice. Been seeing it for a long, long time. Been talking about it for a long, long time. And Because of the gospel, we're called to be people who care and when we, instead of kind of caring and engaging, we get so afraid of the things that people are talking about, the solutions that they're offering, that we resist or we combat or we push against, it's an egregious re-experiencing and kind of recapitulating of this injustice where we per- perpetuate the unjust realities in the world. And so for us as a people, like we can actually listen, we can learn, we can engage, and we can do it with thoughtfulness. And so here's one I, I want to ask you. There's a lot more we have to talk about. Um, and we'll continue to engage this. We care about other issues as well. And we just feel in this season right now, we'll, we'll continue to address this. But in this season, we really need to lean in. So I want to ask you for a couple things. One, one keep leaning in personally. Um, keep leaning in. If I said stuff tonight or if things are said tonight or things we're doing are tripping you up, keep leaning in. We are going to continue to address this as a church, and so we're not debating it, and we're not interested in like, well, and so if you feel like churches shouldn't engage this, and I say this with a ton of love, like I I hope you'll reconsider as you look at the Bible, but if you're like, I don't want to be at a church that doesn't engage this, then we genuinely, we love you. You're on your journey, and we care about you, but we're not going to like regularly kind of like accommodate and kind of settle to every person that's concerned about those issues where we're constantly kind of like slowing down because we feel like this is something the church has to care about. To be faithful to the gospel, we must engage. We must be passionate, we must be prophetic, we must be intentional, we must be deliberate, we must endure, we must sustain, we must persevere in it uh, because we think that God's glory is radiated through people who pursue his vision for diversity and justice. So keep engaging, keep learning, uh, keep acknowledging issues when you see them. Even when you have questions to come at those questions with like, I see that there's issues, I see that there's problems, maybe there's something I don't understand, I wanna learn more. Don't take a posture of resistance, but a posture of "I I wanna grow and I wanna learn and engage. And last, hold on to grace. God loves you, he loves you. He loves you and he loves the people around you, he loves the people of this church. He loves the people of this world. And to know his grace towards you and his grace towards the world and his love for the world and to engage is a part of what it means to be his people and it's the way we'll reflect his love in the world. So let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we come right now and we ask for wisdom and for help. Um, We need you. The world needs you and they need us uh, to hold fast the gospel, to proclaim Christ crucified and risen, but also to live out the beauty and the glory of the gospel in our lives. And so would you help us to reflect your glory, to show grace towards one another, to show love, but to be a people who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. In Christ's name, amen.